this episode of Community Matters Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss issues important to managing and governing condos, cooperatives, and homeowner associations. My name is Tony Campisi, Executive Director of the Keystone Chapter of Community Associations Institute. When it comes to finances for community associations, there's a set of best practices you should follow to avoid becoming the victim of fraud or other financial crimes. Joining me today to discuss these financial best practices is Russell Munns, CEO and founder of Community Financials, a company that helps over 12,000 homes around the country with monthly accounting and helps make your community accounting stress-free. Russell, welcome to Community Matters Podcast, and please tell our listeners a little bit about Community Financials. Tony, thanks for having me on the podcast, and hello, everybody. So I used to be a community manager and then a president and co-owner of a large management company, and I noticed that there were communities that were either smaller or had a very active board uh, or weren't complicated, and they wanted to have a different way of doing things. They wanted to kind of do things on their own. Maybe they were self-managed or they split the management from uh, an on-site you know, manager's role or somebody else that they hired to help with the physical plant. So I wanted to provide tools from a large management company uh, to make their lives easier. And the backbone of that is doing the monthly accounting. So we collect dues and assessments, we pay bills and we provide financial reports and other administrative help to boards all around the country. Great, thank you for that. That was a great overview. Um, let me start with the the first question. I guess the obvious first question here. You say that best practices come from the worst practices. What do you mean by that? Ah, so it's the ugly side of uh, community management accounting. So there's, I'm sure everybody has seen either news stories or. Uh, Maybe they've had uh, a neighboring community uh, where somebody had stolen some money. Hopefully it didn't happen at their community. But the, the worst practices are when people steal money from community associations. And that can happen from either a board member, an on-site employee, or a property manager. And I've seen it at uh, firsthand. I had a competitor at the management company that I was involved with where uh, the accounting person at the management company stole millions of dollars. Um, so that it was unfortunate to meet with the board members that went through that. And I wanted to learn how to prevent it. And so I did uh, over the last few years, I also uh, took that further and, and did uh, probably analyze 20 different case studies where uh, communities were went through, you know, fraud and embezzlement and how it was perpetrated and how they could be prevented. So when I talk about the best practices, it's how to prevent fraud and embezzlement at a community that came from those worst practice experiences. So I don't know if you're aware of this, um, but we had three cases in Pennsylvania in, I would say going back the last four or five years, definitely pre-pandemic, where uh, exactly what you described happened, management companies, um, were defrauding, unfortunately, defrauding their their community. So this is familiar to, I think, our members here in Pennsylvania. 
Um, how can this be prevented? How can fraud be prevented in a community association? So it happens not, you know, I'm sorry that it happened in Pennsylvania, but if it, any relief, it happens all around the country. So it, uh, it, it it's, uh, it's unfortunate. So the, there are several ways to prevent it. And I think we'll get into them. I'll, I'll share a couple of examples first. Um, so one, there was a, uh, a, uh, board member, and I think they were in Florida. So they would, they had two check signatures were required. And the person who was the board member was forging the second board member's signature on the checks. And so they had a checkbook. The, let's say, I think it was the president. The president had the checkbook. They forged the, either the treasurer or vice president's uh, signature. And the, that was just one person with a checkbook paying bills. And so they've wrote out checks themselves uh, or associated companies. Next, we had an on-site manager that I studied in uh, the embezzlement case studies where they had a debit card for the association and they used the debit card because the community wasn't paying attention to the financials or the bank statements or have bank account uh, access. And they used the debit card at all places as a casino to get money while they were, uh, I guess, behind at the tables or something. And then the first case study that I told you that I've witnessed firsthand, the communities didn't get bank statements or didn't have access to the bank accounts. And the controller actually forged the, the financial reports. And without any bank reconciliations or bank statements, that's how those happen. So those are just a couple of ways to uh, reduce fraud is get acts, you know, get the bank statements, typically a best practices on the financial reports, you'll get the bank statements as an attachment, or you'll have uh, access to view the bank accounts online. Next, get the reconciliation report. So the bank reconciliation report basically is a proving mechanism to prove that what's on the financial reports matches up with what's in the bank account. Uh, next, you'll wanna have transparency. And we'll talk about a, some other tools for transparency when it comes to paying bills. And then checks and balances. So it's not just that one person with a checkbook writing out the checks, that there's actually, there's some, well, what's referred to as internal controls where there's two people that have to sign off on things at the board level. Some of this sounds so obvious, you'd think it would it would occur to someone that if you're attempting to defraud an association, you don't want to use your debit card at a casino. That's kind of a red flag, I would think. Yes. <laughs> but you, yeah. I guess you never can tell. Um, what recommend, what recommendations do you have when it comes to association banking and the management of funds? Well, first off, in many states around the country, for, and for good reason, it is... Uh, it's illegal to, to have what's called commingling of funds where the management company would have one account and then they would be collecting all the association dues and putting it into that one account. It gets very difficult to track the accounting and it makes them, it can be a mess. So you want your, your funds segregated from other people's funds. So the first thing is your association should have its own separate operating account. Secondarily, 
everybody is trying to save, well, most people or most communities are trying to save for those capital improvement projects. And it's best practice is to open a second reserve bank account. So you're separating monies that are to be used in the future from those that are being used in the uh, presently. And so it reduces the overspending uh, and stealing money basically from uh, the capital improvement fund. So that's the first thing. Uh, you can also manage these separate funds for reserves and operating by adding line items to your balance sheet for earmarked projects. So you can say, okay, not only do we have the balance sheets going to show the operating account balance, the reserve account balance, but then you can take it further if you want to and get more granular and say, okay, out of the, you know, instead of the reserve account balance being one big number, you put the roof fund, you know, uh, is $150,000. The painting fund is $25,000. So you kind of break it up and you can show what is earmarked. And that's a good way for the board to see whether they've got enough money for those types of things or they're saving enough. Uh, when it comes to association banking, like I said before, make sure you get bank statements uh, with the financial reports and have access to view them. Uh, you know, when it came to that that uh, property manager that was using the debit card at the casino. If the if a board member was looking at the bank statement, they probably would have seen that there was a debit charge at the casino's name on there on the bank statement, and it probably would have raised the question uh, instead of finding it a couple years later uh, when they found additional things, uh, you know, embezzlement activities over time. Um, I would say. Uh, keep track of checkbooks. So if you have, and this happens also at the management company level, if you print your own checks inside your management company, you want to keep the check stock locked up so somebody just can't print an erroneous check. Similarly, if you have additional checkbooks, you want to, one, make sure that, you know, maybe there was a transition from one board member to another board treasurer. Uh, the first board treasurer got sent additional checks uh, when they transitioned responsibility to the new board treasurer, they just gave the current checkbook, but not the, uh, you know, some old checks for an old account. So you want to make sure you've got all of those uh, checkbooks accounted for because somebody, you know, uh, falls down, break a hip, they don't have the money, uh, they get a, you know, some unfortunate medical condition and they, they go, okay, well, how can I pay for this? Because it's my life on the line. So that's just an example of some of the embezzlement things that came up are the reasons why. But anyway, you want to keep track of checkbooks. Uh, uh, if likewise, if the board changes, you need to have changeover and signature cards. And so make sure that's happening so that the, the old board members don't have access to the funds anymore. And then you want to close unused bank accounts. And for a couple of reasons, one, It'll be less time consuming and less costly for, uh, you know, whoever's doing it as far as time goes to reconcile additional accounts. Even if it has limited activity, it still has to be reconciled. You still have to get the bank statements and attach them to the financial reports. Secondly, I was I had a firsthand experience with a client. The board, uh, former board where maybe a person moved away, they didn't have a new address for them. Another board member passed away. They had money in the bank and a reserve account. Uh, 
is over six figures and the board couldn't get access to the to the funds for you know nine months or so they had a, multiple trips to the bank to explain what's going on with the, the bank mad branch manager they just couldn't get access to the funds because they were no longer signers on the account and they couldn't bring you know they couldn't find any you know uh, the people that were previously signers so that's a good reason to you know besides the access to the funds from the former people to make sure that you have access to the funds. So those are those are some recommendations I have. A lot of this sounds like it's common sense, but, and there's a, there's a but here, um, you know, there's a lot of community associations around, certainly around Pennsylvania, around many states probably. They're smaller, they don't have a management company. And so this is all being done by volunteer members of the board. And they may, you know, they may forget to close an unused account, or maybe they don't remember every year to update the signature cards or something like that. What do you, what, in your experience, what's the awareness level of elected homeowner leaders about these best practices? Do, do you think there's a, an, a, an awareness gap there that makes this more likely to happen or makes it, you know, make certain communities more susceptible to these kinds of fraud? So- I would just say, yes, of, yeah, there's, you know, CAI tracks this, there's probably a third of the associations in America are self-managed associations, and they probably don't have the, you know, financial reporting on time, the, the division of duties, the transparency, all of these best practice things that we've talked about, and they probably don't have the awareness or education around it either. So that's the first part of it. Um, so, we're, you know, we try to provide that education piece. I write articles I'm on, you know, I've, I've done speaking engagements at CAI conferences and, that, and this podcast is an example of those things. So we try to bring awareness to, to for that market. But additionally, I would say, Tony, that this even happens when communities are working with a management company, you know? So of the, of the embezzlement, that I researched, you know, some of it was happening by on-site managers, some of it was happening by portfolio managers, some of it was happening by accounting staff at a management company or the leadership of a management company. So it doesn't really matter. I think it's the board volunteers, for the most part, aren't aware of these best practices and how, you know, some of them, you know, a lot of it is common sense, but if you are um if you're in, if you're self-managed and you're in the weeds of just getting things done, you're not really thinking about it or you don't have time for it. And if you're working with a management company, you probably assume that they're doing things the right way. And maybe you take your eye off the ball a little bit, but any, in any case, the board still has that fiduciary responsibility for its monies. And so the best thing to do is kind of, you know, I'm hopeful that many people get a chance to listen to this podcast to to brush up on what they're doing at their community. Yeah, I mentioned at the start that we had some recent incidences of, of this and they were um, management companies. So you're absolutely right. This this is a an issue that doesn't just impact communities that are self-managed. Um, let me ask you about paying bills, bill payment. What are, what are some best practice recommendations you have for uh, community associations and bill, bill paying? Sure. So there's a, couple of things. I already discussed checkbooks and making tracking where your checkbooks are. Uh, 
Second thing is, just like there was one person who was paying the bills at the association and there wasn't any oversight. So that person wrote themselves some checks and to the tune of, you know, close, yeah, I think it was $80,000. Uh, that, you know, that's again, the division of duties or some checks and balances or what's referred to as internal controls. So within our industry, there are tools that provide the ability for board members to have to approve an invoice before the payment is processed. And our system we have where it's two board members, or if they're working with a manager, that it's the manager and then at least one board member so that there's dual approval authority before payment is released. So then nobody's surprised and then nobody you know, can just run away and make payments willy-nilly, so to speak. All right, so that's the first thing. Um, and then the, uh, and this provides visibility of an invoice through the process. So if you're systematizing this, you can see when the invoice came into the system, you see the PDF of the invoice, when it was GL coded by somebody, then when it was approved by somebody, then when, when it, the date it was approved by the next person, and then the date it was paid. So you have this visibility over the uh, payment process. And a lot of times, you know, communities complain that, you know, uh, vendors aren't getting paid in a timely manner. The vendors want to stop working with us. You know, maybe it's because the, the board volunteer paying the bills left and they're the only ones who are writing the checks. Or maybe it's because the payment process at the management company is they do weekly or every other week check runs because it's labor intensive. And so the payments get delayed. If you're systematizing things, you can speed up the process. And then even more so, you could uh, you know, be able to pay vendors by ACH, which means they get paid. The money shows up in their bank account within three days after it's been approved by the boards. So it's very, you can speed things up very quickly. And, you know, uh, we're talked with one board in uh, Georgia and they were like, we, we have to beg the, uh, the vendors to, to work with us while they're waiting on delayed payments. And you don't want to have to be in that position because it's tough enough to find vendors that want to work with community associations. Um, uh, so you want to, and you want to keep your good vendors coming back. So that's, that's another one. The, uh, there's a, a, something called positive pay which is an advanced uh, functionality of a bank where the bank can check that the, you know, the account number for the check, the, the check number itself and the dollar amount on the check, they match those three things with a validation file for these payments to make sure that a check that's being presented for payment isn't, hasn't been forged, isn't fraudulent. So positive pay is a great tool. It's something that's done, you know, in more advanced, you know, uh, businesses like, you know, some manage, leading management companies or company like ours does that, but it's, it's a, it's a powerful tool to reduce, reduce that issue also. And it's a best practice for paying bills. Let's talk about collections. It's always a hot topic among CAI. We've done a lot of education programs on this. What are some best practices that you have for uh, collecting from delinquent homeowners? Sure. So off the bat, make it as easy as possible for owners to pay. Give them a lot of different ways to pay. There's a tendency right now where 
you know, either we're just accepting checks because we don't have the ability to receive online payments. Then there's also the, the pendulum swung far off the other way. We only accept online payments. There might be members of your community that only want to pay by check, or there might be members of the community that only want to pay by e-payment. So you have to provide both. And the more ways you have for a homeowner to pay, the more likely that you're not going to have a collections policy a problem. And then you also want to uh, give them those that are in a delinquency status, provide the opportunity for them to pay by credit card. If they're in a pinch, they'll pay by credit card. They pay the convenience fee, uh, but at least they they pay their assessment and they don't go into a collection policy and maybe get you know slapped with additional fees. The next part is you want to be able to systematize and standardize the application of late fees uh, to an owner's account if they pay late. You can't just pick and choose owners that you're going to put the late fee on because that opens up the board for uh, you know some liability. And then you also want to make sure that uh, if you're uh, giving, uh, you know, if you've got a process in place for uh, this this late payments. So best practice is having a what's called a collection policy, which basically takes the, okay, after whatever the governing document says, after 10 days or 15 days, uh, the homeowner hasn't paid, then we add a late fee of X. And make sure that the late fee is still relevant. I've seen some governing documents where the late fees five or $10 because it's from like the 1970s. So if you need to update that, you update that. So it's a deterrent. Um, but then it goes, okay, after 60, after 30 days, this is what happens. We send a, a late notice uh, to, to the uh, homeowner. After 60 days, we send them, you know, a, a final warning letter that we're going to send them to collections or to the attorney. And then after that, at some point, you'll have a pre-lean certified letter that goes out that you know, says, you know, hey, this is getting serious. And so there's ways that whole time frame should be memorialized in a policy and then provided to the homeowner so they know, okay, going forward, this is what's going to happen. And we better, you know, pay our pay our, our dues on time. The next best practice is um, you know, there are companies that'll help with actually uh and we use them to to uh report the delinquent payer to the credit rating agencies. So that's the best practice. That's why all the car loans, the credit card payments, your mortgage loan, they all report to the credit rating agency because nobody, you know, everything these days is, is based on your credit score. So if, if you can take a homeowner uh, assessment and make that something that gets reported to the uh, credit rating agency, it'll quickly go from a bill that's on the bottom of the pile to pay to one of those that are on the top of the pile to pay. And that in and of itself typically removes probably, you know, 50, a good 50% of the delinquent payers and gets people to pay quickly and on time, which is good for your cash flow and good for your ability to pay bills. So you mentioned at the outset um, the the incidence of the debit card being used at the casino. And I'm sure that things like petty cash, debit credit cards are a big source of of fraud or, or embezzlement in community associations. What kind of best practices can you share here uh, on, on that? All right, petty cash makes me chuckle because it's just a bad idea. 
it means that somebody's got cash in a box and then they got to record, you know, cash transaction going out the door uh, and coming back in. And if you're using petty cash, I just say, you know, get rid of petty cash. It's, it's difficult to account for and it can often go missing. So uh, that's the first one on petty cash. Debit card, what could have been done differently in the case of the manager that had a debit card at the casino is, uh, and the problem, you know, they'd used it more than one time. So you, if you can, the best practice is to create a separate bank account for just the debit card so that uh, your only exposure is to the amount in that bank account. So you maybe it's $500 is what you put in that bank account. And so somebody with the debit card will only be able to keep going to the ATM as many times as they can drain $500, which is a lot better than the person being able to go to the bank account you know, for every day for 30 days and drain you know, tens of thousands of dollars out of the account for the association. So that's the first one, the next one on debit cards. Uh, credit cards. Uh, you know, they're better because, you you know, they've got a maximum limit. Um, and so, you know, that's also a good tool, uh, uh, you know, versus having just a set amount in a separate bank account. Uh, but the credit card, you know, just make sure if, if uh, the community has employees or the community board members have a credit card that when people tra transition, that you make sure that those are closed and that, uh, you know, they are, uh, uh, then the new person gets a new credit card and then the old person doesn't have the same number and can't use the credit card. This is all really great information, Russell. Do you have any final tips for those listening that can help avoid any kind of financial fraud? I do. And um, the one way that I was found in the embezzlement case studies was a community that the on-site staff was using, you know, to save money, the board had them use Quicken or something to do the payroll. And so what ended up happening is that the, uh, the on-site staff ended up paying themselves additional paychecks and bonus checks. And that kind of went missing in the financial report somehow by the board for a while until it, it, it didn't. So I would say use a third-party payroll company uh, have them, that's another check and balance. Maybe it's a little extra money, but uh, use them. The other thing it helps with is from time to time, states change their withholding tax amounts. And so they're gonna make sure that you're compliant. I've had, uh, I've, I've come across communities where the right amount wasn't taken out and they ended up getting hit by fines and penalties and the back taxes owed. And so it, you know, it causes, yeah, that's one extra thing the board didn't need to deal with, right? So that's one thing I would, you know, encourage people. If you're working, if you got payroll at your community, make sure to, you know, outsource that. Well, like I said, Russell, this has all been terrific information. I'm sure it's going to be very helpful to those who listen to this podcast. Um, so I want to thank you for joining me today for Community Matters Podcast. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. For more resources and best practices on managing and governing your condominium, cooperative, or homeowners association, please contact CAI or visit our website at www.caikeystone.org. Thanks for listening.